0: My name is Annika Anand. I'm the co-founder of the EverGrey, which, by the way, is a daily cheat sheet uh, all about Seattle that arrives in more than 7,000 Seattleites inboxes every morning at 7.30 AM. Okay, so we have John Levesque, who's going to be our moderator today. Um, He is the managing editor of Seattle Business Magazine, where he supervises the editorial content of the publication, as well as writes a monthly column. Um, Before joining Tiger Oak Publications in 2010, as managing editor of Seattle Seattle Magazine, he worked at the Seattle Post-Intelligencer in many positions. (laughs) (laughs) Um, We also have... (laughs) (laughs) We also have Anne Levinson. Uh, She has served as a judge, as the chair of the state's Utilities and Transportation's Commission, and in several roles uh, for the city of Seattle... Since retiring from the bench, she has consulted for governments and courts on system reform. We also have Rodney Hines. He's the Director of Social Impact for U.S. Operations at Starbucks. He leads the company's strategy to launch and sustain stores in lower income, diverse communities throughout the country. And prior to Starbucks, Rodney served as the U.S. Community Affairs Manager at Microsoft. And then finally, we have our uh, REI's Director of Government Affairs, uh, Mark Bareka. Um, He has been the the Government Affairs Director since 2011, and it's Director of Community Affairs since early 2013. And he's guided the co-op's engagement in federal, state, and local issues. Um, this has included advocacy on matters such as internet sales and international trade, as well as efforts to assure RAI's current and future members can continue, can, can continue to enjoy outdoor recreation. So, meet our panelists, and without further, further ado, uh, um, take it away.
1: Thank you. Yikes. We were just talking in the green room, wondering if uh, anybody would show up. <laughs> and we were sort of betting that, gee, maybe we get to leave early, but <laughs> apparently not. Hi, everyone. I'm John, and uh, this, is, this is fun. This is sort of like uh, my class. Some of my students are here. I, I teach at Seattle U occasionally, and it's uh, nice to see a full classroom. We appreciate your, <laughs> your being here. No, no slam against my, my students who are in the, in the front row here. I, I take it that you've noticed that uh, the, the tenor of these times has presented corporate America with some interesting opportunities. Whether it's from an attempt to change federal policy and law or to rewrite the rules on federal lands, immigration, health care, environmental protection, energy policy, I could go on, many corporations and corporate executives have stepped forward to voice concerns over what they deem to be maybe questionable intervention in areas that directly affect their business or their customers. Now, the idea of having a corporate conscience, especially here in the Northwest, isn't particularly novel. Uh, In fact, the state of Washington was the first in the country to create legislation that enables a business to register as a social purpose corporation, meaning it's a a for-profit entity that considers social or environmental issues uh, in decision making instead of relying solely on maximizing profits. But as the title of this panel inherently applies, what are the ramifications, the obligations, the opportunities of a CEO or an entire company being a social justice warrior? Can a for-profit enterprise really profit from taking a stand? Is there a downside? Our three panelists will will try to touch on that in the the next 45 minutes. You've already met all of them, so I don't have to do the the introductions. And so I'm gonna start right here on on my right with Mark on REI's approach to corporate activism, uh, centering on REI's belief that a life outdoors is a life well-lived and that, taking that a step further, we're becoming an indoor, an indoor species and are manifesting the negative consequences of that. Present company excluded, of course. Mark, what's your role in, in expressing and supporting that philosophy at REI?
2: Um, well, first, thanks for the opportunity to be here, and it's, it's great to see such a phenomenal turnout, but not surprising for Seattle. Um, I consider myself one of the luckiest people on the planet because I I get to actually just be a successor to decades upon decades of work at the co-op. You all might not know it, but uh, REI Co-op was born in Seattle 80 years ago. So we're in our 80th year. And I would assert that the co-op has been a change agent since its inception. Uh, Lloyd and Mary Anderson formed the co-op uh, for Mary, it was a full-time job. For Lloyd, he had actually a, a different job uh, delivering packages, and he worked at the co-op at night. And they, uh, they helped create a community in the Puget Sound area that embraces the outdoors, that get, gets other folks outdoors. And so they really put change, and in particular uh, uh, addressing the human need to connect with the outdoors into the DNA of the co-op. Uh, fast forward... Uh, 40, 50 years since uh, Lloyd and and Mary stepped aside from the helm. And that's the ethos that we bring to wherever we operate across the country. Um, So, you know, I I reflect on the role of of corporations. And in in all candor, it's it's a little bit hard for somebody from REI to speak to corporate America writ large. Because we do have this unique um, DNA. Um, if I, I guess if I could say one thing about um, business in America as, as a whole and how REI is a manifestation of a successful business with a social purpose, it's that our structure really matters. It really has helped us enormously stay focused on purpose uh, that we are formed as a co-op. Um, I take pride every day in the fact that uh, through our philanthropy, which is significant, we're really just reinvesting co-op member dollars in the places where people love and in getting people outdoors. Um, and and if you, so if you're a co-op member, we, we appreciate your membership. I'm just a member like you. And I'm my team and I, we're responsible for stewarding your dollars to make the outdoors a better place. But this co-op structure means that uh, we have uh, one relationship or maybe two, and that's with uh, this, the, the satisfaction of our members, and um, the employee base that keeps the business running. We're not distracted by any uh, quarterly reports. We don't issue quarterly financial reports. There's no uh, shares to be purchased. There's no threat of takeover. Um, and so by, uh, in some respects, I think of us as the original B Corp. Um, we, we have the co-op structure that really enables us to stay focused on, on mission in service of our members' interests and society's interests at large.
1: And we'll get back to that, uh, the, the B Corp and, and social purpose, in, in, a, in, a, in a while. Rodney, I wonder if you might share with us uh, your challenges uh, in, in taking taking the principles that S- Starbucks corporate has, has uh, granted you uh, to work in Low-income and diverse communities, and partnership with government and civic organizations to to advance economic development, to open stores uh, in areas where Starbucks decides that you need to be. The,
3: I I'd probably have to use the mic, right? Can you hear, Can you hear me without the mic? Are we being streamed? You want the mic? There's an audio. Recorder. All right, there's an audio recording. I'm going to be adult. <laughs> the um, more adult. More adult. So the I do want to give a bit of context, and then I will jump into some of the challenges of the work that I'm leading for the company. Uh, I think the just as a backdrop, and many of you here in Seattle probably already know this, but it won't stop me from sharing it again. The, um, I think it's similar to what Marcus said. It is a part of our DNA that I think it started with as the founder of the business for us to be responsible in thinking through what is our role as a corporate entity in Seattle, in the U.S., and around the world. Uh, And it's grounded in the fact that we really do focus first on what is most important to our partners. Uh, Those of us who are employees at at Starbucks, we're actually partners in the business because be it part-time or full-time you have a you have an opportunity to own stock and own part of the business and we treat you as if you are a partner in this business uh and that has informed our benefits it's informed how we operate around the world so recently you've heard that We've launched uh, parental uh, parental leave benefits for all partners, part time and full time. Um, we, we're one of the first companies to offer healthcare insurance for part time and full time partners. Uh, we've launched efforts like uh, hiring 10,000 refugees around the world, hiring uh, over 100,000 young people who are not in school are employed, um, or, uh, a commitment to hiring veterans and military spouses uh, here in the U.S. So all of that speaks to. Uh, what's important to me and for all of us at Starbucks is that we wanna, we, we're want We responsible for having a voice external to the company, but we're also first responsible for delivering on what is important for our, our, uh, our partners, our, our key stakeholders in the business. Uh, that means that uh, we're mindful of... Uh, the fact that what they're attracted to, for many of us who come to Starbucks, it is that sense of responsibility. Uh, we have about 200,000 of us who work at Starbucks uh, across uh, the offices that we have here in the 30,000 stores around the world. Um, with that comes a challenge. Uh, with that, there's a lot, of, uh, a lot of pressure to do more. Uh, and personally, I welcome that pressure because it, it forces us to push the envelope in terms of what does it mean to be a responsible corporation. At some point, we had questions internally about should we be a B Corp? Uh, and to be honest, we were already re- we were, were acting as if we are a B Corp uh, because of the stance that we've taken. Uh, so the work that I'm doing now, uh, it's fairly new for the company, but it's it's an iteration, it's a newest iteration of what we had been doing before. Uh, so. Uh, About three years ago, and I'll quickly tell the story, three years ago, in the aftermath of the Michael Brown shooting in Ferguson, uh, Howard, uh, with uh, many of our execs, we started having these conversations around the state of race relations um, in the U.S., and the, the, the question of the conversation was, what is our responsibility at Starbucks? Uh, and we took that conversation. The conversation started with us here in Seattle, but we took that conversation on the road to our partners around the US. Uh, I was fortunate to be with Howard when we went to St. Louis and in Ferguson, and it was about three or four months after the fatal shooting of Michael Brown. And about 200 of our partners there uh, asked the question of us um, what are we going to do? What are we going to do here in Ferguson? And that question was grounded in frustration that they were expressing and that what the world was seeing for Ferguson wasn't their Ferguson. Uh, And so uh, in the aftermath of of that conversation, uh, Howard did what he does and he said, let's drive through Ferguson. Um, So we drove through it and he said exactly what I was hoping he would say and that was "We're, we're absent from this community and not only are we absent from this community, we have a responsibility to be here. Um, And for those of you who have been in communities that have been devastated by natural disasters, be it hurricanes like in uh, in, uh, New Orleans and other places, what Ferguson felt like for us is what many of us had seen when we went to New Orleans in the aftermath of the hurricanes. It was buildings that had X's and O's on them, demarcating that these were uninhabitable. So that was the beginning of the conversation around this body of work. And what our commitment is, is that we're going to be opening up stores in at least 15 communities across the U.S., lower income, diverse communities, doing so truly in partnership with local stakeholders, local nonprofits, local leaders and governments, uh, and being a a part of local economic development in a thoughtful, strategic way, but proving that a business can be a part of local economic development and be profitable and being a model and a template for that. Uh, The challenge that comes with that is there's a few of them. The one that's most poignant for me, and one of the things that I've been dealing with this week, is when we go into these communities, the aim is that we're hiring locally, and we're tracking the development of those partners who we hire for each of these stores. Uh, And what we're finding is that some of the young people we're hiring have not had consistent work experience. Uh, and it's, and they're, they're bringing to work what they have to deal with and what they go back home to. And so we're dealing more in a concentrated way, homelessness, uh, domestic violence and abuse at home, transportation issues and infrastructures that don't exist in some of these communities that we're going to. Uh, and so part of what I grapple with on a daily basis is how do we best support and maintain the development of those folks who are hiring in these stores. Um, so, that's a big challenge for us. Uh, the other interesting challenge is the, um, uh, we're constantly getting requests request from different cities for us to come to these cities with these stores. Uh, and I was telling Mark before that um, that, I was, that was one of the things I was afraid of uh, and that this is something that could be good, but it's also we want to get this right. Um, and I fear going into places where we won't have all the elements work. And so I worked with our team of demographers at Starbucks, and we actually came up with this index uh, that looks at where is their economic development already underway in cities that we can be a part of. So if you know enterprise zones, empowerment zones. Uh, we look at unemployment rates. We look at diversity numbers, uh, number of opportunity youth, so kids who are not in school and employed. Um, so all of that gets into this matrix that helps us decide on where we're going with this strategy, uh, and that's a that's, uh, it's kind of fun to work with nerdy
1: demographers. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like the neighborhood version of uh, Amazon's HQ2. You have you have and an microcosm, you know, small small communities wondering if, if Starbucks will will locate there. And I, I want to ask you uh, a question uh, about th- that r- relates to Amazon. Uh, LGBTQ ad- rights advocates have initiated this no gay, no way campaign that's pressuring Amazon to avoid building its HQ2 in a state that doesn't protect its residents from discrimination for sexual orientation or gender identity. And I think this this sort of ad hoc movement has identified 11 of the 20 finalists um, are in nine states that do not offer LGBTQ protection. Can you describe your involvement? How, how did you get involved in this, this effort? And have you gotten any response at all from Amazon?
4: Well, first, thanks for having me. The uh, And it's great. I'm a big fan of REI and Starbucks, so it's great to be with you guys. Um, so uh, what the person who did the introduction didn't mention are a couple other chapters in my life, which is why John asked me to be on this panel. Uh, I was one of the first out LGBTQ uh, Officials in our state back in the mid 80s, many years ago, uh, and have worked uh, on many efforts statewide over the years and locally with uh, trying to build big, large coalitions, including the business community, to take uh, positions that would help uh, us uh, statewide. And also, I served for a time, I was the person who led the effort to um, keep the storm in Seattle, and served for a time as chair of the ownership group. So I've had a chapter as a business leader. So I think those are the reasons John asked me to be here. And so I get to look at this through the lens of having been in government and then having been in business and having been an advocate. So I would say for me, John, in particular this effort, I have felt for some time that we as, I'll put my advocate hat on for a moment, that we as advocates have missed opportunities to significantly help shape public policy uh, made by governors, legislators, and local governments by not fully leveraging these decisions when businesses are making a choice as to where to locate, where to expand, where to build a server farm. And that uh, while we have done all sorts of other great advocacy, we should have strategically prioritized this as a tool that would really move the needle on impacting public policy in a big way. So imagine if over the years businesses had not just said, tell us what tax breaks you'll give us if we locate in your state, but tell us how you fund education. Tell us, do you have anti-discrimination laws that speak to inclusion and tolerance? Tell us, do you have environmental policies that encourage use of renewable energy? Tell us, how do you treat immigrants and those in marginalized communities? So if businesses had said, we are going to make our decisions about where we Invest, where we locate, where we expand based on those criteria, not just on whether you'll give us a tax break. You could be sure that in state houses and in city halls in those communities, they would be moving uh, with all deliberate speed to start making some of those public policy changes. So for me, I I would say that I think Amazon has taken a good step in this direction in its criteria. So it hasn't just asked for tax breaks, it's laid out a set of criteria but I would have liked to have seen, and I argued this when they first made their announcement, that they were much more specific, and particularly with regard to the kinds of laws that uh, we want to see. If they had laid out criteria such as, for example, if you do not have a non-discrimination law in your state uh, regarding LGBTQ folks, so sexual orientation, gender identity, that, that is an important criteria to us because of our workforce, because of our customers, because of who we are as a company. That would not work for us if they had said that. That would have been in the news coverage. That would have been in the war rooms as all these locales were deciding how they were going to do their bid. That would have been in all the media reports. And again, it would have leveraged a lot faster. Um, it will take us years of lobbying and lawsuits to get the amount of change that could be gotten if we used that leverage more strategically. So I would just say if you look at the cities now, Amazon still has an opportunity to do this. If they had done it when they announced their finalists and said the reason these dropped off, here are the specific reasons, that would have sent a loud message. But they can still do it now when they choose their finalist and say, we chose our finalist, this was a significant criteria. They can say, we didn't choose a city in Texas because Texas still has a law in the books that says that you must teach people that, quote, homosexuality is a bad lifestyle. So, of course, we would not locate in a city in Texas. We would not locate in Indiana, because they still refuse to have a hate crimes law. We would not locate in North Carolina. We would not locate in Ohio. If they said that, again, uh, when they make their selection, that will drive a lot of change. Because, remember, they're also saying, as part of this process, to all these communities, we're learning a lot about you communities through this process, and there'll be other investments we'll be making. So these mayors, these governors, these legislators are watching closely uh, how these decisions get made and what gets prioritized. And I think we could move the needle a lot more. And I'd, I would just say for me that in the realm of in influencing public policy, I think what uh, what Starbucks does, what REI does, what so many companies are doing by uh, their advocacy, their social justice, everything that we're going to talk about today is incredibly important. But in terms of moving the needle in Public policy, I think there's nothing more important that we could do now than leverage where businesses invest their dollars, and that if we really want to get where we're trying to get, if businesses say we're going to make our location and expansion decisions in a way that align with our values, uh, that would be a terrific thing. So.
1: Which leads me to my next question, I guess. I work at a business magazine, and I have CEOs telling me quite frequently, we talked a little bit about this in in the green room earlier, CEOs, many of them from small companies, not necessarily firms the size of Starbucks and and REI, but occasionally larger companies. They just tell me that it's not appropriate for a business to take a stance, any stance, on, on social issues, even here in Progressive Seattle. They say their job is to, to be responsible to their stakeholders, shareholders in some cases, and, and they're not interested necessarily in alienating uh, a potential segment of their, their demographic. So by your presence here, I, I would assume that you may disagree to some extent. Uh, my question is, uh, are there degrees of advocacy uh, in, in the corporate structure uh, based on type of business, size of business, the clientele, the mission. Mark, you touched on this a little bit, I think, earlier in in your remarks, because clearly you have uh, stated missions, but uh, are, are, are companies, your companies, or in, in your experience, other companies, loath to go where where Ann is is suggesting that you know companies should should go. Rodney, you want to start?
3: I don't think we have a choice. I mean I, I think the um and it goes back to what Anna's saying. Uh, and I I also you know what I appreciate about the Starbucks partners and I go back to our partners. Um and then I will also say that our customers um, and customers for any uh, you know for these times is that the public is asking us to do more. And the expectation is for us to do more. Um and in fact more and more um, we know that customers are making purchasing decisions based on the policies of businesses. Um, and so that definitely informs who we are and some of what we do and say. The, um, You know, I, I think we're conscious of, I know we're conscious of who we can influence, and I think our influence... Really, where we where we pursue it is, we're mindful of more than 80 million people come through the doors of Starbucks on a weekly basis. We can touch and influence those folks who come in, and what's our what's what do we have license to do? And we've stretched that at times, and it's been hard. Um, And I think we will continue to stretch that muscle, and 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 I think partly is driven by what are our partners want, and, you know, the average partner at Starbucks, uh, I don't represent, um, the average partner is about 23 years old, so in the early 20s, so it's a politically savvy, smart, mindful, thinking person that drives and pushes the buttons, um, so I think that does influence how we show up and where we show up, uh, and it also influences the conversations we have with our customers, um, so it's inevitable, and it's, and it's necessary, and we think in those ways.
1: Mark, Thoughts?
2: Yeah, I have uh, similar thoughts, um, but maybe a different starting point. And I, think it's, I think it's interesting to reflect on um, the language that people use in a setting like this. Um, you know, my observation, this is more Mark speaking than REI, but my observation is there, there's the language of human beings, uh, and then there's the language of the marketplace. Uh, there's the morality of human beings, and then there's the morality of the marketplace. And in those two different realms, if you follow the logic, you end up at very different places. So, in the language and morality of human beings, you ask yourself, you know, what is the highest order of value? And um, I would argue it's love. You go into the language and the logic of the marketplace, and the highest order of value is profit. And you end up at very different places depending on which frame of reference you have. Um, Getting back to the the cherished privilege of being at a co-op, you know, we do across our employee base, across our our, uh, network of stores, we try to come at business from the human perspective. We want people to become co-op members. Um, we do talk about customers, but, boy, we want people to be part of the co-op with us in this journey. Um, so, again, we have the, the privilege of of having, I'd say, a more humanistic approach to business by virtue of our upbringing, if you will. Uh, but I'd 110% agree with Rodney that even if you flip over to the, the language of the marketplace and the logic of the marketplace, nowadays, businesses... Uh, understand that people who walk in the door are um, not just consumers, not just people there to buy things and consume them and dispose of them, but that the business wants a relationship. And, you know, people nowadays with the Internet, uh, with Amazon, with Costco, with Walmart, if they want a mass market, cheap, cheap, cheap experience in a heartbeat, boy, they can get it anywhere. But if you're in any other type of business, you have to have a relationship and people look for a business to follow through on real values, um, to manifest real values. And that's how, from our perspective, from a business perspective, we see us making ourselves relevant, even in a world where people can get the cheapest thing fast from almost anywhere. A brief inter- interjection here. I
1: was emceeing an event two nights ago at which Howard Behar, uh, former executive at Starbucks, but retired for the last decade or so, was being honored with a Lifetime Achievement Award by my magazine. Well, Howard Schultz was kind enough to come to the event and introduce the other Howard. And at this event, Howard Schultz, you'll enjoy this, was talking about exactly what you were just discussing. And he was bold enough in front of 330 people to say, the highest purpose at least of the corporation that he represents and uh, and driven in large part by his long-time association with Howard Bihar is love. And he talked both about his love for Howard because they were partners for so long but also about how Starbucks uh, approaches its business. Now, the cynical journalist in me is going, uh, oh, really? But <laughs> I was... I, you know, but I'm the MC that night, and, and I, you know, I had a tear in my eye. I'm, I got I got to tell you, it was uh, it was authentic. And just thought I'd share that. It's really kind of not necessarily pertinent, but I think it does address what where Mark was was just going. And I think you can possibly merge the the, the two, the human and, and the corporate. And um, I want to ask you that there may be a, a relationship here. When you uh, were with a storm, you know you chaired the local ownership group. And this is about 10 years ago now, hard to believe. I was in sports at the time, and I, I, I told Ann I wanted to work for her someday, but she never hired me. <laughs> so, so this is what you get. But the storm became known for it, its advocacy at a time that it was probably on the on the cutting edge. Uh, can you talk a little bit about how that came about, how you decided which issue or issue issues you wanted to – Uh, to bring forth to the community and say this is important to us?
4: Sure. And can I cheat for a moment and give a little bit of an answer to your previous question, too? No,
1: I'm sorry. (laughs) Your your time is up.
4: So uh, I'll hire you. No, I'm just kidding. So um, (laughs) um, I just wanted to say that for those who say, as, as leaders in the business community say, it's not appropriate to take a stance, I'm a person who believes they take a stance every day they take a stance uh, when they decide who to hire, how to hire, who to promote. They take a stance when they decide who's gonna be on their board of directors. And you may have noticed there are not a lot of women on boards of directors in most corporations. They take a stance when they develop or don't develop sexual harassment policies and non-discrimination policies. They they take a stance every day when they're making decisions uh, that matter. And even when they hire certain contractors or consultants, they're they're taking a stance. So. I I just would say I I don't think that argument holds holds water. Fair enough. All right. So in terms of the storm, uh, for those of you who have not been avid followers of women's professional basketball, you can leave now. (laughs) (laughs) uh, Back in uh, 2007, when there was a federal litigation going on, a lot of acrimony around the Sonics uh, being uh, possibly taken to Oklahoma, Um, I was concerned that the powers that be who were involved in all that acrimony and litigation were oblivious to the fact there was a women's professional team being impacted as well. And so um, I decided to see if I could somehow figure out a way to get the Oklahoma group to um, sell that franchise, to split it. The Sonics and the Storm were together in those days as most of the team's franchises were. Um, and uh, so spent um, seven or so months quietly negotiating with the Oklahoma group to try to effect that change. But the reason I did that, and at the time it was probably one of the more dif- difficult things I've, I've done professionally, was because of what the storm meant to the community, because of what the storm meant to young girls, because of th- what the storm meant and professional basketball meant to young women having a chance to compete professionally. Because I grew up in the pre-Title IX era. so. For me, we weren't buying the team to make money, we weren't buying the team to be sports owners, we weren't buying the team for whatever traditionally sports owners do, but uh, we were doing it to serve the community. So I was bound and determined that if we were successful, we were going to run the team in a way that aligned with our values and our principles and meant something to the community. And that meant everything from how we negotiated with the Oklahoma group, how we treated them, how we reached out to them, how we respected that they were people of goodwill also, to immediately upon acquisition, I announced that we were going to enter a long-term lease at Key Arena because Seattle Center was struggling with the loss of the Sonics, and we had an opportunity to go to south of Seattle and north of Seattle into private um, venues and said, nope, we're going to stay here. And so negotiated a, I negotiated a 10-year uh, lease because the team had been on just a year-to-year, and that wouldn't really help the Seattle Center or the community. Same on the practice facility. When we bought the team, you'll appreciate this, when we bought the team, the city had just negotiated the sale of the property across the street from the center to the Gates Foundation for that headquarters, which is a wonderful thing. However, the practice facility was there, so we had no practice facility a few minutes after we bought the team. So... um, What could possibly go wrong? Yeah, it's just, anyway, so, but I decided, again, rather than go to a private gym or a private facility on the east side, we would work with Seattle Pacific to help build um, a practice facility there that then their students could use and their coaches and their players could work with the team, so it would be a true community partnership. Uh, Our sponsorships, we immediately reached out to those who had... We're working on environmental stewardship and for those who are working on other sorts of things in which we believed and ask them to be initial sponsors of the team. The type of coach and players that we brought in, we were going to make sure that we're um, consistent with our values and our vision. And so uh, in terms of LGBTQ stuff, the uh, world was a little bit different 10 years ago. and. Um, You know, there was concern that if we were uh, welcoming and affirming in a visible way to the LGBTQ community that that might mean you wouldn't have certain sponsors join, you might lose revenue, you might not succeed as a franchise, and here we were, one of the few independent franchises, and if we didn't succeed that was going to be a real risk to women's professional sports, and as well the league wasn't at that point in its life. Swell on uh, how it was uh, interacting with the LGBTQ community. So, nonetheless, we said this is important to us, and we're going to be visible and affirming, and um, grand marshal in the parade and everything, that, sponsorship, everything that brought with it. And uh, it's been remarkable that that, um, over the years, has gotten even better. And I have to say, today, I'm just so proud of the players. For those of you who have watched the Take a Knee movement and, you know the women haven't gotten the same publicity but the women have been very involved in this movement as well and they in some ways have even more to risk because their salaries are pennies on the dollar uh, and they don't have a lot of other opportunities and it's hard for them to get sponsorships to begin with so when they exercise their voices and and reflect those values it's, it's particularly meaningful so um, I would say then that uh, experience as a business leader for me diversity was a, um, a benefit, not a burden, and it led to, I think, the team having becoming even more beloved in the community.
1: Along those lines, I'm, I'm an opinion writer. <laughs> I write opinion all the time, and I hear from people who disagree with me. Do, do, do you gentlemen hear from your constituents on... Any of the activism that your your companies uh, espouse, do you ever? I, I can't imagine somebody coming to you, Mark, and saying your your outdoors activism is wrong. But I'm just curious. I mean, do you ever do do, <laughs> do do you ever do something and and hear from somebody who says, "Hey, you know, I've been a customer for 50 years, and you know, I don't think you should be doing this."
2: So um, I see my colleague Michelle Clements in the. Audience, she will share some of these experiences too, having spent a good chunk of time at REI. Um, <clears throat> truth be told, it's it's uh, we we do face tough circumstances from time to time, and that's because we value very much this notion of co-op and membership. And so, while when we stake out a position, we might not get inundated uh, by um, people with opposing views, uh, we do get commentary quite regularly, and we take it seriously. Uh, We don't want to disappoint members. But one of the things that I think we've uh, come to realize, especially over the past several years, is um, we can't be true to this notion of a purpose-driven company if we're stymied by... uh, conflicting points of view among the member base. And so we do send notes and sometimes I author them. Um, We do send notes to everybody who raises an opposing view with us by various channels and articulate our respectful disagreement and plow ahead. Um, This has actually happened a lot more in the last 12 months, which wouldn't be a surprise. Um, You know, in the, in the last 12 months, the federal government has turned in a direction that is more hostile to public lands. And we've been vocal about that. Um, uh, Just over a year ago, there was tumult not just about the future of public lands, but about this question of inclusivity. And we like to say that the outdoors is for all. You can't have an outdoors for all if you don't have a United States of America for all. Um, And so our CEO um, wrote a blog piece and that got some pushback um, and we've just learned into it that uh, we will proceed with our purpose and respectfully disagreeing from time to time with some of our members. And I've seen more than a handful of emails back that say, well, please, you know, um, I relinquish my membership number XYZ. And, and so it happens, and we plow ahead.
1: makes me want to ask the the, the Patagonia question. Uh, I'm sure everybody saw the Patagonia ad when the the, the shrinking of the, the national monuments uh, occurred, big black sign on their website, the government just stole your land or something to, the, to that effect. Your approach is probably more moderated, although I think your, your CEO your, your, was, was quite on point about what what you as uh, what he as an individual and you as a company believe. Do you talk about moderating that voice, not, not you know not being so strident, uh, you know as strident as a as a Patagonia?
2: Well, w- this is a deliberate uh, course of action on, on the part of the co-op that has received a lot of conversation internally, but not much um, uh, not much dissent, frankly. Um, and we respect what Patagonia does. Back to this notion of the outdoors being for all, um, we think the outdoors is neither Republican nor Democrat, red nor blue, and so for several years now, we've been driving at this notion that uh, left side, right side, united outside. And so we, when we articulate our point of view relative to public lands, it's a strident point of view driven towards this inclusive notion that the outdoors is for everybody. And I think, you know, from an outsider's point of view, it it results in messaging that doesn't seem as flamboyant or, you know, peppered with spice as the Patagonia. Uh, But the the ethos is the same, that we ought to be protecting public lands for all. Uh, The the language is slightly different because we have this notion that we do want to make sure that there's a bridge uh, across different communities into the outdoors.
1: I would love to entertain a question or two from you, if anyone has one. I'm going to give you the microphone. So. There's a lot of companies that don't have the you know, luxury or advantage of having this DNA. What, what sort of advice or what sort of transition process do you guys, have you seen successful or, or could you suggest to help companies that don't come from this place of kind of driven by, by human values? How do they get to a place to be more like a Starbucks or an REI or, or a, a Seattle Storm?
4: I can g- give you a couple examples that I have seen successful over the years um, in the LGBTQ community we created something many years ago called an equality index and put a set of criteria in there and, and provided it to com- corporate corporations and said here are some ways you can measure um, and here are the things here how you can prioritize whether it's the policies you put in place or the hiring practices or th- again the board membership and the like. Um, I've also, Seen shareholder activism be very successful in influencing companies, um, and then uh, sometimes it just takes. Um, what's the phrase? Sometimes a crisis leads to the best change. Sometimes it takes somebody on the inside making enough noise uh, that leads back you- journalists. Maybe there you go. <laughs> uh, that um, it sparks change, and I've seen that also change a culture pretty quickly.
3: I went to the same place of share, shareholder resolutions as well as sort of the public will. Um, and I do really believe that your purchasing decisions will inform some of what can happen at companies. Um, the, uh, I go back to what resonates for me and why I've decided to be at Starbucks. And that's, you know, it's funny. I, I'm usually reluctant to use that word love, but Howard does. Um, but, I, you know, on a, on a daily basis, I question, am I doing enough as a citizen? Uh, personally, that's my question. And what works for me at Starbucks is that that's the question that we're asking ourselves on a daily basis at the company. Um, and I can't imagine working at a company that does not do that at this point. And I would push the public to push p- companies and to support companies that are thoughtful and mindful and... Th- and having their eyes wide open and seeing what's going on and filling that responsibility to be responsive.
1: Mark, last word.
2: Um, I, I think it comes down to, to meaning. Um, you know, it's a really, really, really noisy marketplace, especially if you're in retail and consumer products. And um, to, to stand out I think your employees want to understand that there's more to life than just coming to a job. Uh, they'd like to have a job that has meaning. Uh, I think that's true if you're going to stand out back to my earlier comment that as a brand, your brand stands for, stands for something, a purpose, a meaning. Uh, and so I think the question to a business leader, to a startup is, you know, what is the meaning behind what you're trying to accomplish other than run a successful business?
1: I, w- I wish we could entertain more questions, but my stage manager says we're done. We could probably go another 45 minutes, but please give our guests uh, a round of applause.